0: already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits.
1: Hey, BTB buddies. A while back, I asked for nominations for the fourth annual Discover Pods Awards. Well, last week I found out that Behind the Bits is one of the 12 finalists in the best interview style podcast. Holy cow. I was excited beyond belief. I am in the running with such podcasts as Armchair Expert, WTF with Mark Marin, and Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. It's a real honor to have Behind the Bits be selected alongside some of these really popular podcasts. I mean, I listen to some of these myself. The winner of all the categories, including best interview style podcast is decided by vote so now i'm asking for your vote if behind the bits has provided you with information or inspiration please help me to win against these powerhouse shows winning this would help behind the bits reach a wider audience and open up possibilities for interviews with comedians who might not talk to me otherwise your vote means a lot to me as behind the bits is a real passion project for me Please check out the link in the show notes and give Behind the Bits a vote for Best Interview Style Podcast. I'm told that you can pick any or all categories. I haven't really tried that yet because I already voted. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and thank you for voting. Please vote for Behind the Bits for Best Interview Style Podcast between now and November 6th. Hey, we're live. How are you, Jeff?
2: Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me.
1: I am uh, very pleased to have uh, Jeff Shaw with me today. Jeff has been doing comedy for, you've been doing it for about 30 years, right?
2: Yeah, that's correct. Over
1: 30 years. And I had the pleasure of seeing you uh, about a month ago in a, in an outdoor live venue. And I got to tell you, I hadn't seen live comedy because I don't just do comedy. I'm a fan. Uh, and I hadn't seen live comedy since I think my last one was the beginning of March, and uh, it was sure nice to get out and see you. And you did a fantastic job.
2: Oh well, cool. Thank you very much. Uh, I wish you had introduced yourself afterwards.
1: Yeah, it was one of those nights. It, I didn't. I I didn't feel like it was a good idea because I knew you had what like a five hour drive back to Cleveland.
2: Yeah, five yeah. hours. <laughs> and, and I hate five to long be, hours back to Cleveland. Like Cleveland looks like the only place you don't want to go back to after leaving Leesburg, Indiana.
1: <laughs> yeah, I just I just didn't want to feel like one of those clingy fans, so I said, eh, "Let let the guys go home." And and uh, so now I got you here, and this cool. is the way I like to talk anyway. So that's cool.
2: Great! So, I've listened to the podcast. It's you're doing a good job. Yeah, thank you.
1: So first of all, I know you're in Cleveland now. Where are you originally from, Jeff?
2: Uh, from Cleveland.
1: Oh, really? Cool. So, okay, yeah. excellent. Cleveland rocks. Um,
2: yeah, people always ask me when I go, "Where are you from?" I go Cleveland. I go, really? Oh, no, I'm just saying that to yeah. impress you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's still better than Mishawaka, Indiana. So you're definitely a step up for me. Um, so when did you start doing stand up, Jeff?
2: I started doing stand up in 1986 at the old Cleveland Comedy Club. All right, and yeah, I, I started off with uh, Drew Carey and Steve Harvey. Oh, yeah. cool, cool. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure what those two losers are doing now, but I'm on behind the bit. Yeah,
1: <laughs> as Bob Zaney would say, you've arrived, baby. <laughs> yeah.
2: But there was a club in Cleveland called the Cleveland Comedy Club, and I did my first open mic on uh, August uh, 16th, 1986. Mm-hmm. I bombed so badly, I never went back until February of '87. OK, uh, that's when uh, Hilarity is open. I started doing open mics at Hilarity's in Cleveland and uh-huh. Hilarity's in Cuyahoga Falls, which is Akron, Ohio. And uh, by and this was the old days is during the comedy boom. So in uh, the fall of 87, after like less than a year of doing stand up, I was on the road featuring as a professional.
1: Wow, that's fantastic and thinking about that first time that you went up what was the impetus what what was it that made you want to try the whole stand-up thing
2: well the first thing was i was a huge fan i was a huge fan of stand-up i was okay. one of those kids that was always in bed at night uh with the lights out with the comedy albums that i got from the uh library playing uh-huh. george carlin uh and uh, Bill Cosby. Uh-huh. And uh, I was a huge Jerry Lewis fan when I was a kid. The Browery Boys the Three Stooges and Laughing um, and uh, all the variety shows, Bob Hope. And then in 1975, I discovered Saturday Night Live and became a big fan of Andy Kaufman.
0: Yeah. And I ripped off his act
2: and I did my own little version of his, ask, his act in um, like uh, school talent shows and uh-huh. campground talent shows and then we got cable TV when I was 13. I started watching all the comedy specials on Showtime and buying a lot of comedy albums. And then I took an acting cl- uh, theater class in my last year of high school. And my teacher liked one of my skits and said, you're so funny. You should try open mic night at the Cleveland Comedy Club. I filed that away. And then when I was uh, came home from active duty training for the Army Reserves, I was all finished up with all my training. I decided to give comedy a try, and I had been home on leave from the Army Reserves. I was going to the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California, Uh city of Monterey. To be a a Czech linguist for Army Intelligence, and uh, I discovered David Letterman when I was there because one of the guys down the hall was a big fan, and we were watching Stephen Wright. And I discovered Emo Phillips, and I bought Emo Phillips's (laughs) albums and Stephen Wright's album. And then I was hooked because yeah. I consider myself to be kind of a weird kid and they made uh-huh. weird cool. So I thought if I can't be cool, I'll make weird cool. And I'd already been, i already been a, a Roddy Dangerfield and Annie Kaufman um, fan. So the writing that these two guys displayed on their albums that that was enough to, to seal the deal for me. Uh-huh. And so then I saw Eddie Murphy in a sold-out Blossom Music Center in 1986, oh, wow. 18,000 people, and I said, "Okay, I got to give this a try." Uh-huh. And I had been, I had been writing, I've been working at my dad's factory uh, with the anticipation of going to college in the fall. And I was writing jokes down on my lunch break and 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 stuff like that. And so I had by the time August rolled around, I had like three little notebooks of jokes.
3: Uh huh. Wow. And,
2: yeah, and uh, I was. And also, I was delusional as a kid. Uh, ego had a lot to do with it. Yeah. Because um, I liked those comics, but any any comic outside of those guys. I didn't think was funny, so I watched a Tonight <laughs> Show with my dad, and we would I would sit there like this. This guy ain't going to be funny. I remember yelling at the screen when Jerry Seinfeld was on. He was doing a bit about banana, like monkeys drinking banana daiquiris. And I'm like, come uh-huh. on, this guy's on TV, and I'm <laughs> give me a <laughs> break, you know. And so I would watch all these great comics, and I would think they would s- stink. So um, I decided to try my open light n- night experience. Uh, finally, I watched some, some comedian on the tonight show. I said, this is it. I can't take it. These guys are awful. Uh-huh. So, um, so I, uh, had all my jokes written and I called the Cleveland comedy club and they said, we have open mic night on Sunday night. Come on down. So to give you an idea of how delusional some 19 year olds can be <laughs> and comedy, at least in the 80s. And I kid you not, this is a story I've told other people. I was so clueless. That I showed up at my first open mic night, uh, and that's that Sunday in August, nineteen eighty six, with a suitcase in the trunk of my car, (laughs) a couple couple of changes of clothes. Um, I had I forgot what the gift was, but I had a gift for Johnny Carson.
0: Uh I
2: had um, I had enough cash to buy a plane ticket, and I had somebody that would pick up my car from uh, downtown for me if a limo took me to the airport. I was convinced that when I did the open mic night on Sunday night, that the Cleveland comedy club would call the tonight show hotline (laughs) and tell Johnny Carson to have me on the show the next day. So I had had clothes. I had money for a plane ticket. Someone was going to get my car for me. And, uh, and I thought, you know, and then, so I drove past the comedy club and I saw a long line of people under the awning. Uh, some of them sitting on the floor, and I said, "Wow, how do they know I'm here? I wonder. I don't remember. I don't remember telling the guy on the phone my name. I might have, but I don't know. How, maybe I don't know how did he find out. Well, I, okay. Well, good. I guess they they, they know. So I really thought those people are here to see me. So I park my car. I leave everything in the trunk. I, I go, I go and I see that everyone in line is talking to each other and they're all scruffy looking. They're all kind of look like a bunch of narrative. Well, not like a, not like a typical audience for a comedy club. Not uh-huh. that I would have known what that was. I had never been to a comedy club. Right. This is my first time even driving past a comedy club. Okay. <laughs> so I show up and, and I see all these guys in line, most of them men. And I hear them talking about, yeah, you know, um, Scott won the uh, comedy contest last week. He'd been doing it five years. That's the first time he ever won. Now, he doesn't think he has enough material to do a, a new set when he comes back, so he's going to repeat the stuff. How's that one bit that you were doing there, Bob? I don't know. This is about the hundredth time I've tried it. And, uh, I don't know if I can get it to work, but you can watch tonight. How long have you been doing open mics? Have you been doing an open mic down in, in Akron? Yeah, I've been doing that for about two years. They haven't passed me yet. I, I can't get it mc week but uh you know it's coming along and i'm like what, what are these guys talking about i'm here to become a star to go on the tonight show tomorrow and all of a sudden i start get this sinking feeling people talking about comedy like a long process and they've been doing open mics and, and, and practicing and it's taking hundreds of times to get their jokes work and i get this like sickening feeling and I, I, i'm like you know, and then these guys look at me and I go, is this the line for the comedy club? They go, yeah, we're the comics. we Are you for the open mic night? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, well, get in line. Those like, will pick numbers and stuff. We're all going on. And I'm like, I thought I'd be the only one. Yeah. <laughs> so I, 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 I get picked to go onto the show and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in, the, in the back of the room watching the other comedians. I've never been on stage before and I'm getting angrier and angrier. I want to go up and knock the mic out of everybody's hand and told them to go work at Denny's. You can never be a comedian. I'm yeah. like, why are these people wasting the audience's time? Get me up there so we can get me on a plane and get me to Burbank. <laughs> and I was in the Army Reserves, as I told you. So uh-huh. I had black military glasses. I had the high and tight, you know, military haircut. Uh-huh. And I had gotten a, an old suit from like the Salvation Army with a little white shirt and a tie. And I had it all in a bag. Uh And uh, I asked the MC to tell me, like when there's a comic or two in front of me, and when it was getting ready to be my time, I um, went into the bathroom and changed. And I walked out wearing my military glasses, my buzz cut, my little gray suit with the, the white shirt and a black tie. Uh-huh. And as soon as I walk out of the bathroom, I hear the MC say, ladies and gentlemen, your next comedian is a regular here at the Cleveland Comedy Club. He's one of the paid professional MCs, and he'll be MCing here for Bill Wall next uh next week. Ladies and gentlemen, how about a big round of applause for Drew Harry?
3: Oh, wow. <laughs>
2: And I see Drew Carey walk on with the military glasses, the buzz cut, and oh. the same kind of suit, and I go, ah, ah, ah. And then he starts killing, you know, and, oh, of and course. The time he had um like uh, he had props and things like that too back in the day in '86, mm. but he was so Drew Carey was so funny. So I run back in the bathroom, I change, I change back into my jeans and turtleneck whatever and Mm -hmm. he's wearing black glasses so um i had to take them off and i didn't have contacts at the time and i didn't want to wear my regular glasses so i I went on stage without any glasses and i'm freaking out and i've got my no cards and oh also everybody there had memorized their acts Uh i had brought all of my cards and uh, I asked the MC, oh, where's the cue card guy? Who do I give my jokes to? <laughs> Put him on the cue card. What are you talking about? You don't have a cue card. I go, well, how am I going to do my jokes? He was just take them on stage with you. I thought there'd be like the Tonight Show that I would be reading the cue cards. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? So now I'm freaking out, and uh, Drew Carey kills. And then I hear Mike Malik, the MC, say, All right, we've got a treat for you. Uh, not a regular part of our open mic gang here. This is his first time on stage ever, ladies and gentlemen. Let's hear it for Jeff Shaw. So uh-huh. I can't see, and it's a dark. It's a, a really dark room. It was like black with like red tablecloths mm. and candles. We called it Satan's motorhome. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it, was, it was really. It was shaped like a double Y and it was all black inside, and and then. I went to get on stage and I couldn't see so I missed a step and I fell on the table in front of the stage oh. knocking stuff everywhere and then uh, and uh, then I heard somebody say uh, we normally say get off the stage but get on the stage <laughs> <laughs> and so I, get, I climb onto the stage and, I, and I'm just like, like <gasps> and I I think I got somebody's chicken wings on me, whatever. Now I'm sitting on the stage and it's complete silence and I don't have my glasses on. And nobody told me that there'd be white spotlights in my eyes. <laughs> nobody told me what my voice would sound like on a microphone. And all of a sudden, Oh, he, he introduced me as jaded Jeff Shaw. <laughs> So that was my stage name um, I thought jaded made, meant wacky or weird I didn't know what jaded meant meant even so I just I, I know it was literally yeah Chef yeah, was literal. so um, for those of you watching the stream here and not listening to podcasts, podcast uh, this is this is how I the faces I made I had the microphone and I was kind of like doing a weird type of character <laughs> uh, uh. I said uh, hi everybody it's great to be here I'm in a bad mood found <laughs> out my sister's been cheating on me <laughs> Wait till my uncle finds out Boy, oh. his grandpa gonna be pissed <laughs> And then I did a whole bit about My girlfriend being a leper princess And I went to the leper colony to meet her Mom, her dad, Fester
3: Uh-huh
2: Her dog, Spots Her cat, Puss and Boots <laughs> And people started bullying me Uh-huh and I and I and all of a sudden, all my showbiz dreams—like I really thought that I'd be doing the Tonight Show, getting the couch with that material—so uh-huh. <laughs> I bolted off the stage uh, after like two or three minutes, and I heard the MC Mike Malik go back up and go, "Hey, let's hear it for that Jeff Shaw kid." Kind of a, sh- a short set. I caught it between strokes in the men's room. <laughs> And uh, normally I don't like to, to relay anything that's kind of somewhat blue like that, but that's exactly what he said. Yeah. And, and it, the audience died laughing. Yeah. And, and I repeat it only because I remember hearing that vividly as I was, as I, and I heard that laughter and that was the type of laughter that I was supposed to get. Uh-huh. And he got a joke at my expense, welcome to comedy. And then yeah. I ran out into the lobby and I was hyperventilating and I was bent over, freaking out. And then I hear a poke, poke. I feel a poke, 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 poke. Hey, kid, poke. Hey, hey, kid, kid, hey, kid. And I turn around and it's Drew Carey.
3: Oh wow!
2: He goes, hey. He goes, hey. You know, not bad for your first time. I like that one joke he did, and he repeated one of my jokes to me. I go, which joke is that? He goes, I like that one joke he did. <laughs> I said, which joke is that? He said, um, my mom says I'm so slow, I'd be late to my own funeral. I said, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even go. I never <laughs> liked the film in the first place. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was actually my part of my one good, jo- good joke. I mean, yeah. a lot of the jokes I did back then were like. Stephen rightish and and emo i, I had one yeah. joke was my uh my uncle got thrown out of a mime show for having a seizure they thought he was heckling <laughs> you know and then and then i did a joke i said um uh i uh, tried to have phone sex with a woman she said not tonight i have an earache <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then that's like, good stuff, right? But then, like a month later, I saw uh, Jay Leno do a similar joke on Letterman, mm-hmm. and I was trying to get Jay Leno's address so I can accuse him of stealing my joke. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, how, that's how clueless I was. So, yeah. what I try to tell people uh, uh, when you're a, when you're a young comedian, you you're you stink, but you think you're great. Yeah. And then 30 years later, you become a great comedian, but you think you stink. Yeah, (laughs) that's
1: That's, how it works. That's that's uh, that's very true. You know. um, the kids that are watching and the kids that are listening after this is uh put up you have to understand jeff is
2: you mean young you mean young comedians you don't mean like this is like well is I, gonna w- after like romper room or something right yeah but i'm
1: talking to okay. the young ones right now because you're uh-huh. you're just a couple years younger than i am and uh-huh. you have to know that being as naive as you were was a lot easier back then because there was no internet you didn't know how carson got his comics and you i mean you had the tv and you had the tv guide that's all you had and and you when you thought when you saw those comics up there you thought that they were discovered in cleveland and i can totally relate to that because i probably would have thought the same thing about South Bend, so um, it's a little bit delusional. But uh, the funny thing is, is the internet has changed things so much that, and I I like to compare that to like music. Being in the mid- Midwest, I'm a big music guy, and you know when we were young. Um, east coast and west coast got all the good stuff and we didn't get it until about two years after that so you know i didn't get talking heads or blondie or any of that stuff until after that and it was only because the notre dame um, radio did a thing at night uh, for like two hours that the uh, some guy took over the dj and he was from the east coast so i got to hear those uh then but and as far as the media is concerned we didn't know
2: yeah and uh funny thing is that the uh, the internet has demystified everything to an extent. And back in the old days show business was was more mysterious. yeah and um, and uh you know and it was uh, also it was so much harder to get any information on stand-up comedy or how it's done. It was, it was so esoteric back then. That's why you hear stories about a young Jed Apatow uh, tracking down, you know, big time comics or at the time weren't big time, but like, you know, Jay Leno and, um, and uh, Jerry Seinfeld, mm-hmm. you know those interviews that he did with them when he was a high school kid, you know, for his high school newspaper. I mean, it was mostly because he wanted to learn about comedy, and there's yeah. like nowhere to do it. I, I Drew Carey gave me one book; it was called "Comedy Writing Secrets" by Professor Melvin Hellitzer, mm-hmm. and that's usually one that most people started off with back in the '80s, and that, that's still in print today. Yeah. but but um, it wasn't like you can. And then it was Gene Perret's books, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you have to order them special, you yeah. know, or, or see if your library had them. Yeah. So it it was, uh, it was easier to be delusional, yeah. you know, but it was harder to get good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, so then you had to, you had to like watch, you had to actually stay up unless you like, uh, I think I got my first VCR like in 86 or 87. Yeah. But you stay up at night and watch Carson, watch Letterman, you know, yeah. and, uh, and, and also too. One of the things that did me in, in the beginning is I had a, uh, you know, I had a weird sense of humor, but I was very inventive. Mm. And I liked stuff that was weird and inventive mm-hmm. and people. And most of the comics in the local scene would tell me, wow, you're such a good writer. You're a good writer. Uh-huh. And um, I never say that to young comedians, unless they're, unless their jokes are good. Right. I never tell people they're a good writer because their concepts are good or because they're trying hard because they're trying to be original. You're a good writer if you write well. Right. And and that's the hardest thing there is. So one of the things that did me in is because people didn't know how to give me advice because most great comedians didn't even know how they learned what they learned. So it was hard for them to pass advice on the people. So they'd see you go up there and maybe maybe you don't get big laughs, but you have some stuff that they're laughing at in the back of the room. And they go, wow, this kid's different. He's original. He's trying hard. Mm -hmm. Well, man, you're a good writer. You know? So what happens is if people tell you that you're a good writer, when you first started, you're not going to listen to the audience. When the audience isn't laughing at you or a joke doesn't work Screw those people. It's funny. Yeah. Yeah. So what I, so I've never really learned, what i was doing wrong because so many people were patting me on the back for being weird and different and maybe having some good ideas or good premises but with with comedy the best way to become a comedian is to learn how to write jokes yeah <laughs> That's what you need to do to become a comedian yeah yeah,
3: yeah. no doubt
2: you know, like i have a, I have a you can there's one way you can do it you can say um uh i can say to you uh based on my hair and my voice a lot of people Um, aren't sure what my sexuality is Mm -hmm. that's not a joke right but if i say hi if i say i have a girlfriend my apologies to everybody who just lost a bet (laughs) that is a joke
1: that gets the
2: problem is so many comedians will go up and say hey people can't tell me because because of my voice instead of going instead of doing the joke so when you're a when you're a young comedian, like the best thing you can do, the most important thing is learn how to write material. Hmm. Everything else is secondary. Yeah, you know, uh, and you have to, you know. So uh, nowadays, so the point I'm getting at: no many books? There's so many comedy classes you get, like almost every big city comedy club has a comic whose wife told him to get off the road. So he's teaching a comedy class on, on, on Saturdays. Yeah. There are, there are classes on Udemy and the internet and there's websites. There's so many books on Amazon that you can get. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people are taking the stage for the first time after taking the formal classes and stand up, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the courses you'll, you'll, you'll go to classes on Saturday for four to eight weeks and the graduation will be a five-minute set in an a room on an off night yeah and then everybody's friends and relatives come to the show so nowadays you have the benefit of the art of stand-up being shareable and teachable and learnable but at the same time it's it's brought so many people in who think it's going to be easy or doing it for the wrong reasons so there's just so many people trying it now but sometimes the the feeling of being like in a band of brothers or like a secret society Mm -hmm. you know all for one and one for all that specialness of it is kind of uh lost to a degree yeah you know uh so it's so it's uh, uh pros and cons but uh I am a huge fan of stand up comedy and so I still buy and read comedy books. Yeah. Um, I just reordered some of my favorite books to have um new copies because they've been updated uh-huh. and I'm constantly watching stand up I watch every special, I listen to every podcast, I do I'm doing a lot of podcasts of like the, the local comedians here in Cleveland. Uh-huh. You never stop learning. Yeah. You know, and and the key is uh now because so much comedy is available online uh i have become a fan of modern comedy and embracing modern comedy and learning and seeing what all these young people have been doing over the past 10 years Mm -hmm. helped me stay relative and and be able to become a comedian again because i'm not doing the same type of stuff that i did back in the 80s or even the 90s and a lot of comics are intimidated by the modern style of comedy by Uh modern i mean over the past 20 years where it's confessional yeah. It's premise driven instead of like uh, formula driven. Right. You know? Right. And uh, it's
1: not all set up punch.
2: Right. Yeah. And even if it is set up punch, it's like, like, you know, like a lot of the, the greatest set punch comics in the 80s, you know, and even in the 90s, they had great jokes, but there were no premises. So now, I mean, the best set up punch comedians that you see on television, i give you an example. Um, Uh, uh, Mitch Hedberg, you know, uh, in in the early 2000s, you know, uh, he was totally set up punch, but he would say like, uh, I don't have, I don't have a girlfriend, but I do know someone who would be very, very angry to hear that. (laughs) Yeah. Now, do you see that's just a set of punch, but that's about something. It's right. about how, you know, sometimes, you know, women think, you know, that they're in a relationship and the men doesn't or one person relationship isn't committed. And, um and there's, there's so much going on there. So there's a reason behind the joke and there's, and there's a dynamic there that people can relate to. So nowadays, if you're, if your comedy doesn't have that dynamic, like a premise, an underlying premise, oh. or if it doesn't have, um, a reason to exist. There are so many comics these days that nobody needs anymore. We don't need anybody's jokes. Yeah. But everybody's unique point of view on life is welcome. Yes. And so if you can inject your comedy with that, then it, that's why you can watch a comedy central mixtape on YouTube where 10 comics are talking about roommates mm-hmm. or ten comics talking about college or marriage or breakups and it doesn't matter that they're all talking about the same thing cuz they're all bringing a different point of view
0: yeah.
2: to it and so uh, hack comedy isn't really about what the what the topics are it's what the, it's it's it, it, it describes the word hack describes comedy that's lacking an underlying premise yeah. or or insight into the human condition mm-hmm. which gives the joke a reason to exist
0: mm-hmm.
2: and um, once i figure all that out i can basically keep my style which is more on the shorter side you know i do act outs and stuff but i'm more like a set of punch type of guy Mm -hmm. and then my my hunks are a bunch of jokes strung together all on the, the same type of premise but um and a lot of comics trying to make the transition from the 80s and 90s to the 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 new comedy age Had a hard time figuring it out Mm -hmm. and realized that doing the act that they would uh, that they did years ago, and so this is why you see on the cruise ships like Carnival Cruise Lines, who we can talk about later. That's who I was involved with for a long time. Most of the comedians on cruise ships now are not the hacky. Uh, stereotypical cruise ship comics that you think of. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the comics working ships today, you know, except for a few older guys have been grandfathered in, you know, um, a lot of the comics are, 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 are top comics oh. who can like, work clubs and do television, but are maybe in their 40s or 50s. And so they're not getting that heat like they used to. Mm-hmm. So cruise ships have become a place for journeyman comics who have been able to grow with the times and to um, and to adapt to the new comedic sensibilities and to um, to find out who they are and start expressing that on stage. Mm -hmm. So nowadays when you go to um, uh, a comedy club, I mean, comedy clubs on cruise ships, you see guys who are progressing now more than they ever did back on the road in the Mm eighties. You know, a lot of the, the comedians who work for carnival cruise lines have, like three to five different half hour shows, no mm. repeated jokes. Yeah. And you have to learn how to um, hold an audience attention with no opening act and lots of distractions in a noisy little back lounge mm-hmm. with, with, with a different demographics sitting in each seat right in front of yeah. you. You know? So I am excited by stand-up comedy still to this day. But the, the big problem is is now with comedy being so huge in our culture and so many, so many um, ways to view great comics, so many great record labels, so many great internet uh, companies are putting out uh, internet specials Mm -hmm. and uh, so many great comedy club chains, so many apps you can download. And there's so many podcasts on comedy, but now there are so many opportunities for, for a comic like me to see people half my age who are 10 times more talented than me. Yeah. <laughs> and you have, to be able to, you have to be able to deal with that. Mm. If you can't, then don't even turn on your computer. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so as I told you at the beginning of this, I kind of did a deep dive into you. And the first thing I wanted to talk about, so is um, check your, is check like your family language? So you were a bilingual from the start, or did you learn that on your own?
2: Oh um well I should probably explain to listeners that uh, that I was a Czech linguist in the Army uh-huh. and I went to the defense language Institute. Uh, no um, Czech was the language that the my army unit picked for me
3: uh-huh.
2: um, I, I told they, the army said well which language you would you like to learn And I said German uh-huh. so they gave me Czech.
1: okay <laughs> okay, I dig it yeah, yeah
2: no, I was um, I was a member of the 350th PSYOP company in parma ohio uh-huh. when, uh, uh, first of all i like telling people i'm a veteran because i like the the look on their faces their mouths say thank you for your service but their eyes say don't ask don't tell <laughs> um, but when i was 17 my dad gave me an ultimatum he said you can either get a summer job or go to basic training for the army reserves. And I thought, you know, if I got a job, I'd have to wake up early and be on my feet all day. But so let's (laughs) try this army thing. So um, back then the army had something called a split option program. And uh, to join the army reserves, you don't just join the army reserves. You have to join a specific unit in a specific slot. So one of the places open that had an open slot was, uh, a psyops company, psychological operations, which was there in, in Parma. And, uh, you know, in case the Russians came to steal our pierogies, <laughs> uh, we'd be prepared, you know? And, um, so I had to take a test and it turns out I had, uh, I, I scored off the charts for an aptitude for foreign languages. Okay. So the defense language Institute of Pres- the Presidio Monterey is the, um, military's premier language Institute. Uh And so uh, our unit was slated for a European theater Uh in the case of a a war. And so uh, you had to learn the language of the enemies at the time. Uh So it was like German for East Germany, Russian, Polish, um, Uh Serbo-Croatian. And at the time, our unit was lacking a Czech linguist, so okay. that's uh, that's why. And and I and I spent a year and a half of my life there, and I I exceeded uh, at such a high level that I was uh, awarded an Army commendation medal. Oh, cool! And I was Soldier of the Year for for Ohio for the reserve units for based on my uh, on my um, performance there. So Czech is a. Um, hobby of mine and I keep it up to this day I've oh. been to the Czech Republic three times and I also my girlfriend is Croatian we've been together uh almost 10 years so uh I've taught myself uh Croatian as well wow and I taught myself Spanish and I can read French
1: wow uh tre bien
2: Wow. Oh, merci beaucoup <laughs> that's
1: I took four years of French. That's all I remember. Moncaie <laughs> a I don't know. Um, what, the reason why I asked about the linguistic part, um, I'm going to give you a compliment that you may never have heard before. So when I don't have ear thingies in my ear, I have hearing aids, and I'm extremely hard of hearing. And okay. the problem I have is even with the hearing aids, when I go to see most comics, I miss a lot of what they say unless I'm like in the front row or they've got a really good PA. And your your voice pitch is actually one of the frequencies I don't hear very well, and okay. uh, so I go to see you live, and I'm not I'm not planning on hearing very hearing you very well. I understood every word that you said, and it was you've got like an enunciation that is uh, just perfect, along with the. Um, almost poetic way that you that you talk I mean you've got a meter to your language uh, when you're delivering but I heard every word that you said and that is like a first for me so I don't know if you've ever heard that from an old guy but uh you're the the way you talk is just absolutely perfect I don't have to turn my hearing aids up I don't I don't have to do anything so has anybody ever told you that
2: no um usually um um, usually, uh, it's uh, no, no people. <laughs> yeah.
1: I know no. that's weird, but, uh, you know, I, because so
2: usually it's like, stop talking, my ears are bleeding Yeah. <laughs> or, or like, or when, 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 you know, uh, when guys find out that I'm, a, I'm a man, they want the charges reversed from their credit card from the one 800 number or 900 number, <laughs> um, No, um, no, I haven't had anybody, um, I've had people tell me that I'm a good speaker. I've had people that, uh, I'm a good public speaker and I have good rhythm and a a good joke writer and Mm. and they like listening to me. And I've been told that my voice fits my comedy well, Mm. but I've never been told that I have soothing dulcet tones. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's just, uh, but you know, but, but I guess what you're saying though, is that my voice is. Preferable to tinnitus.
1: And so I'll take that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, just being able to hear everything is j- just a treat for me because I'm always like mo- leaning in and I'm asking my wife, what did they say? Because I missed a third of the whole bit. And so it's really, it's really nice that, you know, when I saw you, we were outside. I was sitting pretty far away and I understood every single word you said. And that's, that's a really big plus for me. So I. Sure. Cool. yeah so um like like i said in this deep dive one of the things is i watched your stuff pretty close uh several times and so on the uh dry bar special for the the beginning uh the the bit is called manly girly man and it's about it's right under five minutes long i think it's four minutes and 53 seconds or something like that and there are you know, we talk about last per minute. There are so many last per minute in there that you just totally grabbed the audience and the rest of the stuff just totally hit because of that. What I want to ask is how long did it take you to get that four minute and 53 second opener that just totally blows everybody away?
2: Um, about as long as it took you to memorize everything that you just said when I gave you the, the, the sheet of paper, <laughs> uh, it would take you like an hour. I, I gave that to you about like an hour ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, that was years. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it took years and that's a bit that I'm uh, constantly adding stuff to. Um, that's the other, uh, the thing about stand up comedy today is, uh, Everyone is expected to have a new hour every year, especially if they have a special whatever. That's okay if you're famous and you're playing uh, venues where your people come and you have your audience there and people know who you are uh, because you can try out your material in front of your audience and you can keep adding, keep adding, and Mm -hmm. you've got anywhere from 500 to 3,000 people in the audience. But when you are a comic who makes a living playing – different audiences of every type of venue all over the country. And nobody knows who you are. Every show has to be dynamite. Yeah. And, and, the, and, the, and, the, and so the comics that you see that have reached the level of where they'll have Netflix specials or HBO specials, and they can write a new hour every two years. Mm-hmm. They're at that level now, but they spent the first ten years crafting and, and learning, getting to the point where they can turn over stuff quickly. Mm-hmm. So a lot of young comics now, they, they start turning over material before their previous material is done. Mm-hmm. You know, so you yeah. have to remember that most audiences don't know who you are. And the and the show has to be good for every audience. Yeah. And you have to realize that sometimes there's gonna be all these things that go wrong there's going to be technical difficulties. There could be drunk people. It just could, you could be, i have an off night after traveling 14 hours on no sleep and no food. Mm-hmm. So you really have to know what you're doing. And, and, and the way that you do that is by practicing your material, getting it right syllable by syllable, word for word. And that takes years, mm-hmm. you know? And so that bit right there um, probably uh, started In um, like 2009, when I got uh, when I got to be uh, the comedy club manager for Carnival Cruise Lines, and I was a house MC, and I was doing 20 shows a week, Mm. and I had uh, I did 20 different shows a week, and I would have to start writing a lot of material. So um, that all it's taken years, and I'm still adding to it. I've added jokes and changed things around Mm. since that special. Yeah, you know, but I'm at the point now where I don't even want to. Uh, where I'm like, I'm am doing jokes where I don't even talk about my how I look or sound anymore. Uh-huh. That's my next step. I want to just do shows without even mentioning that. Yeah, or maybe having one or two jokes. Right. You know, but but the, the the key is is that the audience needs to like you right away, and when there's something like uh, about you that you know. People say that you shouldn't make fun of your voice, be self-deprecating, you know, um, say you look like a woman. I mean, I mean, even even even, even like Conan O'Brien often says he looks like Tilda Swinton, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then and Pete Holmes often says he looks like a lesbian. Mm-hmm. So in and of itself, there's nothing original about it, except what do we all have in common? The three of us. Yeah. We look like lesbians with bad Hair and weird teeth, yeah. and high voices. <laughs> you know what I mean. So, so the key is, is that you know, it's like it's like saying oh, you're not going to go out to dinner with a beautiful woman or a handsome man because everybody else goes to restaurants and it's so hack.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Are you not going to go to Christmas dinner at your aunt's because everybody goes to Christmas dinner at their aunt's?
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> you know I mean, but you, 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 there's only so many things in life, you know. So stand-up comedy. Uh, what happens is when things are labeled hack. Or when you see somebody making fun of the way they look or the way they sound in the opening part of their act, the problem is is that it's just like the rest of their act. It's not done well. It's mm-hmm. uh, they haven't found the right joke. They haven't found the right thing that they look. They haven't found the right approach. They haven't found the right way to um, to uh, show that they're empowered by the things that they're that they they used to be self conscious about. Mm-hmm. So the, when you see a comic who nails it all. It's like if I want to go up and talk about cars or talk about puppies or whatever, if I nail the bit, you're going to be laughing. If I nail about what's unique or weird about me, you're going to laugh. And the thing is, is when you go on stage, if you're someone like me who's a middle-aged man with long hair and a high voice, this, that, whatever, uh, you're thinking like, what's this guy's deal? Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking, what's this guy's deal, you know, um, or like people in the back there, what's this chick's deal? it's because then they're not paying attention to you yeah, and what you're saying. So I tell them what the deal is, yeah. you know, so everything that people might be thinking about me, I, I channel that and I address it all right up front. Right. And then what I'm doing too, is that I'm using my sense of humor. So they get to see how I arrive at my jokes, mm-hmm. my style, my rhythm. So it's more than just making fun of my voice or making fun of me for an easy laugh. I apply all the jokes have to be perfectly rhythm, mm-hmm. uh, per- 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 perfectly rhythmic. It has to be perfectly written. And, um, and then it's all about tone and style of what, mm-hmm. what, what, what things I decide to say and what it is I'm saying about myself, you know, but everybody know that, you know, I know what I look like, but I'm, I'm very secure with myself. But, oh. and, and most of the things that I talk about being mistaken for woman on the phone or in person and all the things that I say, people say to me in my, in my bit. Mm-hmm. those people have always, people, that's all that's really happened. Right. But, you know? So the key is uh, if you, Make fun of yourself or do about how you look. It has to be. It has to be really worked out. And right. so, um and so after after uh, doing all those uh, all those shows on the ship, I you know got that bit towards like a good five. to sometimes like now the manly girly man thing I can do for like ten minutes, and I've got other things in it. Mm-hmm. But uh, after a while, I I used to feel self-conscious about it because, you know, everybody who's got a weird voice talks about their voice. Everybody who looks effeminate talks about it, whatever. But 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 then, like what I said earlier, that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. What matters is that you believe in this stuff. And also there's a premise there and that people can relate to it. So uh, it is so hard to do comedy and so hard to get people to like you. That if you can find a way to get people to like you for five to 10 minutes with your opening bit about talking about yourself, mm-hmm. then that's great. But the thing is, is you have to have all your other bits, you know, and then and, the, and the, uh, have to be equally as strong. Mm-hmm. You have to go on, you know, so I, what I try to do now is make sure that all my bits are as strong and is, have the same amount of, of laughs per minute. Mm-hmm. You know and you want to you you want to uh the key about a good opener is you just you don't want the opener to fizzle out and be the best part of your show yeah you want to do that which opens the floodgates and sets the rhythm and gets everybody ready for that other 55 to 50 50 to 55 minutes yeah
1: you know? and that's and that's really what i thought was perfect about that particular opener and you talked about having perfect writing i can tell that you are super fastidious about your words and that everyone is carefully done. And the, the example I have is you talk a little bit later in the set about, uh, somebody saying, Hey, you know, you, you look kind of like the actress, Jane Lynch. Has anybody ever told you you look like the actress? And I, could, what I did is I took that back to how I would write it um, if I were you. And I would say, has anybody ever told you you look like Jane Lynch? But when you put the actress in there, it makes it three times as funny. But and
2: also it explains something. Pe- not everybody knows who Jane Lynch is. Uh-huh. So Why is that funny? Why is he saying you look like a woman? So when you say you look like the actress Jane Lynch, even if you don't know who Jane Lynch is, you know, she's an actress on TV and there's people who think, oh, yeah. Yeah. So so, uh, yeah, well, it does make it funnier, but also, too, it it also it also makes the joke more accessible for people who don't know who Jane Lynch is, which is so I think uh, the fact that it's funnier. That's like a thing that's just like that comes out when you're you know, a, a style thing that when you're doing this long enough you find the music in every bit. Mm-hmm. If you if you if your mu- if your comedy is musical then you're gonna have those nuances in every bit and yeah. and, and you want that flow. So that can be a point where you know uh, it, it makes it funnier for you uh, and uh, and also actress you know uh, you know actress act has got the you know
3: yeah yeah
2: you know but um. But the the key is, is like the thing that that does in most broken jokes, the reason why when a joke is broken or it doesn't get a laugh, usually the number one culprit is a lack of information. The audience doesn't understand Mm -hmm. because you have to surprise the audience. So the audience, you cannot trigger the laughter mechanism with anything but surprise. Mm -hmm. What makes comedy work is somebody is expecting you to say one thing. And you say another thing, but if they are trying to figure out what you just said and what it means, they miss the part of the joke, the punchline is supposed yeah. to surprise them. So if they're expecting me to say, has anybody ever said you look like Keith Urban mm-hmm. or John Denver or Crispin Glover? Mm-hmm. And then the guy says, Jane Lynch. If you know who Jane Lynch is, you die laughing. Yeah. But if you don't know who Jane Lynch is, then you're going. First of all, you go who, uh-huh. and then now it's it's you're, you're thinking the wrong thing. Yeah. So little little details like that are so important because uh, although there are other benefits, you know, and you you like that for a different reason. Uh-huh. To me, it was putting in the actress Jane Lynch, and I know, like talking about being fastidious. I mean, it's a joke about me looking like a woman. Yeah. But if you're going to do any joke, every joke you do has to work. Right. You yeah. know, and if you're going to say you look like uh, 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 an actress who's more successful than you and more beloved than you, you better get an applause break with it. Yeah, you know. So, and you're <laughs> not going to get an applause break with it if there's any speed comedy speed bumps. I call them right. And uh, the biggest comedy speed bump is why did he say who is this? Huh? Uh-huh? So if you say the actress Jane Lynch, it doesn't matter who Jane Lynch is. Somebody thought you were an actress on yeah. TV, and then they're with you. Yeah. So So it's very important when you're a comic that you don't have any logic gaps in your material. Anything that's the moment you stop, the audience stops to go, why did he say that? What does he mean by that? You've lost it. Yeah.
1: I had somebody, I had an older comic tell me, uh, and you you may have run into him, uh, Lou Deck, Um, he's, yeah, 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 so lose a buddy of mine. And one of the things we, we, uh, we did a podcast, but I also talked to him on the phone. And one of the things he said, and he's kind of embraced modern times. He says, you can't, you can't do a joke where somebody has to pull up the Google to find out what you're talking about. You have to be the Google. You gotta, you gotta take them all the way there. So that's, that's very Um, similar to what Lou says. (laughs) So uh, another one that just floored me because of the the meter and the execution was uh, having intelligent children and telling them they can't have ice cream because I said so. And I think that you actually I think that's actually a minute of you being the child talking about why it's so stupid for the parent to say, cause I said, so that's another one. I mean, how did you come up with that? Because it's, it's so perfect and it's, it's one of those things. I don't know if I could memorize that whole thing. It's like a (laughs) soliloquy. Yeah.
2: Well, first, first of all too, that's another thing. Like those type of jokes are a, like a a tool in the comedy toolkit Mm -hmm. and those type of jokes uh, have been done a lot and can be overdone, mm-hmm. but also, too, the most of the people that do those jokes don't make them perfect, so they become more of a cliche and an annoyance, yeah, than a joke that uh, that so brings you into the comedian's character right. and, and and makes you die laughing. Mm-hmm. I, at, least, at least, I'm talking about as a comic, like, like, uh, so the key to doing one of those jokes where you're doing like a rant is that you have to first of all have an emotion in it. Mm-hmm. And make it relatable, mm-hmm. and then you have to nail the character and have it be everything you know, that, like a smart aleck kid would say.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then um, a lot of times, you know, like a, a lot of my material that that stuff was developed on the ships when I was doing twenty cents a week as the MC mm-hmm. for for eight to fourteen months at a time. Yeah. And uh, uh, for a while, I hadn't. Uh, no other duties other than running a comedy club because I had a standalone job. Mm -hmm. Like the last year or two, they had budget cuts. So I had to like do all the activities that all the other people Mm -hmm. did and everything. But I would, but then the trade off was, I got to do my own headline shows at night. And then I was also headlining they were actually paying me to fill in for comics who missed the ship. So that was a trade off. Mm -hmm. So I had all day to write material on the ship. I would go to the comedy club, sit at my desk at my computer and I would write for four to six hours a day wow. and then maybe do like a little activity for the, for the cruise director and then get ready, go to the gym and get ready for my shows.
0: Uh-huh.
2: And, um, so a, a joke like that would be something that I might have, uh, there's two ways. I can't remember. I would have either have written the whole thing out uh-huh. or ad libbed it and then listen to the recording and then, wrote it out Mm. but for me for the most part everything that i do uh maybe not necessarily the first time if i think of it on stage or whatever or or maybe i might think of it on the way to the stage and, and and put it in a napkin and then try it but at one point or another nothing's in my act without being written out word for word comma by comma uh every single uh Uh, pronoun analyzed every single syllable analyzed Mm -hmm. and uh, i'm very visual visual so some comics they have an emotion and it'll pop out i'm seeing my jokes on a teleprompter and I, i have to visualize every single word wow so uh and then so i practice things like that over and over again and uh and then um and also too when you get a bit like that that is a long um a, a long kind of like a ranty type of thing like that is that that's something that you can practice in the shower
0: mm-hmm.
2: or when you're walking on the beach, whatever. And every once in a while, if you're too tired to write or you don't have any ideas, then you go over your bits and try to make them better.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so bits like that are kind of hard to remember. So I was always kind of practicing them right. and it became a huge favorite of like families and kids in the clean comedy shows. Yeah. So when you get a joke that becomes somebody's favorite, you know, or a group's favorite, then you want to make it better and better. Yeah. So, so after a while, when a bit's of your act, you know, I have certain routine joke maintenance that I do. Uh-huh. So sometimes I want to listen to my whole act and throw it all out or, I'll, or I'll add bits or I'll just sit down and come up with all new premises. Or sometimes I'll just, get stuff on the paper, how I'm feeling about things that I've never done before, never talked about before. But other times, you know, the well is dry and you're just not in the mood and you don't have the energy. So you want to at least work on your act for 20 minutes, half an hour. So what you do is you, you have these little, little maintenance things that you can do, like pick a certain bit hmm. and write it out and see, okay, uh, what's clunky about it. What I usually do uh, with jokes like that, how I perfected them hmm. is that when you have a bit that's like long, or kind of complicated there's always a part that throws you so the part that throws you with a hard time remembering the part you stumble over mm-hmm. when you have like verbal gymnastic is usually the it, it's usually the, the, the joke there's something about that passage that isn't correctly written mm-hmm. and you can and you're talking too long without a punchline yeah so what i would do is i would try to when I'm doing something where I'm speaking for a long period of time is to rewrite it. So there are little jokes along the way. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, by, by making sure periodically that jokes where I'm talking a lot, have a lot of little laughs all the way. Mm -hmm. And that any passages of those jokes that I tend to forget or get stuck on or blank on or stumble over. Uh-huh. Those need to be rewritten. Uh-huh. You know, and 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 when I'm writing new material and I'm trying it out, one of the indicators that I'm out in the weeds with a bit is that I can't remember it yeah. without looking at the paper. That's how uh-huh. I know I've gotten too long and too complicated, you know, and I need to have longer bits cut up into short jokes, you know, that, that feed the premise right? and help develop the premise as you go.
1: Yeah. And the really cool thing about that joke is, uh, there are, I I didn't count how many tags there are in there, but there's probably, I don't know, 15, 16 tags. And each one is funny in and of itself, but the way you present it, is in a way that you're taking it all in like the bartering part and stuff like that so you the audience member is taking that in and they are laughing internally uh but still hearing the next tag and then at the end of the joke you get the big laugh so you really take them on a little journey on that and i i just you know i i I am a big fan of somebody that can do that because I, I don't see very many people do that well. And you, you definitely kicked it out of the park on that. Oh, cool. Yeah. I, I, I admired that a lot.
2: Oh, thanks man.
1: Yeah. So, uh, at what point did you decide you're going to be a clean comic?
2: Um, when I, um, uh, on on the cruise ships, well, I mm-hmm. actually, no, actually, when, uh, when I had to start working, um, when I had to start working land gigs, because, uh, uh, on the, um, on the cruise ship working for carnival is, a. I uh, I was a comedian from 1987 to 2004 in the nineties. I started re- learning how to write essays, mm-hmm. comedic essays. I wanted to be the next Dave Barry. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, started writing from uh, like eight in 94 and in 96, I got published in Cleveland scene magazine uh, and uh, they'd done a couple articles on me and I became friends with one of the editors. And he said, asked me if I wanted to start writing humor pieces when I told him I was a Dave Barry fan. And so I learned all about writing and I was writing for various newspapers and stuff like that around the country. I, I you know, self syndicate myself um, doing articles on comedy, but also like, you know, my comedic essays and then um, I wanted to parlay that into a writing career because comedy kept getting harder and harder and harder. Mm. And in 2004, the bottom fell out of the industry, my 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 career imploded. And to the point where I was so I was so down and out that my mom and dad said, "Well, why don't you just quit comedy for a while, regroup? You can always go back to it. You know, don't quit forever." Just give yourself a break mm-hmm. and, and find a job. I go, what am I going to do? My mom says, well, you know, your cousins work at American greetings. Maybe you like to drive. Maybe you can drive the van around delivering all the cars and you can, you can work on your material in the, um, while you're driving and listen to your music and, and make phone calls and stuff yeah. and, you know, and, and figure it out. Something like that would be great for you driving or, you know, and I go, all right, call, you know? So they said, he wants to drive a van. Well, what does he normally do? I goes he's a comedian. Well, Why don't we just make him a writer? So by that summer, I had I was a full time staff writer for American Greetings in two thousand and four. Uh-huh. And then after a couple of years, I got laid off. Um, you know, my high salary and lack of seniority, and my inability to be political in a in a corporate environment lack of any <laughs> because of any lack of of of, of real job experience. Yeah. Um, I found myself my career over both as a comedian and a writer. And um, I was uh, working uh, at a company that manned. Uh, I was working in copy centers and mail rooms at like 40 years old. Mm-hmm. So I turned 40 and my career fell apart. And, uh, and then after a year, I called Carnival Cruise Lines and asked them if I could be a cruise director. Cause I made a list of all the things that I liked and the things I can do. And I loved being a, a, a shit comedian. And I'd done that my last year of stand-up comedy. And uh, so I put all my stuff in storage, quit my jobs. I was an usher at the, at Hilarity's comedy club. Uh And and I was working there at night after my shifts in the in the hospitals and factories and law firms uh, in the copy centers and mailrooms. And then I was wearing the the monkey suit, you know, with the the, the tuxedo (laughs) shirt and the black pants and the cummerbund and the bow tie and the earpiece uh, (laughs) watching people that used to open for me headline. Oh, and, uh, but I learned how to run a comedy club. And then I, I went to work for Carnival to become a cruise director. And, uh, my crew, my cruise director had me host all the midnight comedy shows in the back lounge. And I started, you know, doing time.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then one night, two years into it, one of the comedians missed a ship and he had me headline, the welcome aboard show do half an hour. I killed was a big hit with the guests. He wrote a review on me as if I were a regular entertainer. The office read it, and they were planning a brand new comedy club for their newest ship, Carnival Dream, which launched out of out of Rome in in two thousand and nine. So I found myself leaving my ship and taking a short break, then reporting to the Carnival Dream in Rome to become the first ever Carnival Comedy Club manager. And we had the Carnival Comedy Club project, which I helped run from the very beginning everything from making tickets to promoting the show to setting up the times to um, dealing with the comics to seating the audience. So I was a one man show. I seated the room. I ran the room. I ran the shows. I cleared the room. I took care of the comics. And, uh, and as the host uh, MC carnival has the early shows, which are family friendly, all ages can go. So you have to be clean,
0: Mm.
2: but then you have the R rated shows, at night where they want you to be dirty, but mm-hmm. you have to be able to both equally strongly. Yeah. So I was doing that for eight years and I had, by the end of the eight years, I had uh, 20 different five minutes, 10 minute sets and I could do three to four different shows. And um, when my job was eliminated and I was passed over for the director's job in the office twice due to my lack of corporate experience or managerial experience, they um, asked me if I wanted to be a cruise director. I said, no, they said, would you like to be a fly on comedian? I said, yes. So I did one last contract working for carnival cruise lines on the carnival splendor. And, uh, the, the cruise director gave me my own shows on the off nights and, uh, halfway through my six month contract where I had to do all the duties that I never did hosting bingo, all that kind of stuff Uh that I hadn't Uh done for years. Um, They, um, when that happened, uh, by the halfway through my contract, I was booked up to the end of the year as a fly-on, and uh, I had my three shows down: my one RPG show and my two R shows. Uh, uh, You do a total of five, so you repeat your PG show and then you do one of your R shows twice. And then I signed off the Carnival Splendor in August, I think. Uh, Thirteenth or something like that in 2017, and then next thing you know, three days later, I'm getting on on the sh- on the ship uh, as a stand-up comic. So what happened was is by that time, they had brought so many comics into the program and so many great comics that there was less work to go around and more people taking a piece of the pie. Uh-huh. So I, I wasn't able to go in and automatically make six figures working only for Carnival, like a lot of these uh-huh. guys were. So I had to start getting work on land to, to supplement.
0: Uh-huh.
2: And so when I started to um, work other clubs and try to get corporate gigs and all that stuff, uh-huh. I wanted to capitalize on my ability to do shows completely clean in uh-huh. front of all ages. Right. And right. so I decided that from now on, you know, so that I'm just going to be clean, except when I do the R rated shows on the ships uh-huh. and, and, uh, and now um, I'm, uh, I try to, no matter what venue I play, I try to be completely clean.
3: Right.
1: There's a, there's a big resurgence in clean comics. I think Gaffigan kind of uh, brought that on. We got people like, uh, Getzy, Nate Bargetsy, who works uh-huh. completely clean. And, uh, the funny thing is, I went to two Bargetsy shows last year and you look at the audience makeup and it's everybody from, you know, a 14 year old kid to a 49 year old truck driver to somebody from the hell's angels. I mean, the, the clean comedy still relates to everybody if you do it well and, Um. and uh, you don't have to, you don't have to drop all the, uh, F bombs or talk about your dick all the time. Uh, Uh, in in order to be funny and i i really enjoy that because i do clean comedy myself and have tried to do the r-rated stuff and it just doesn't fit with either the way i look or the way i am so it's it's really neat that that's making a resurgence
2: uh yeah i think so
1: well that's i mean that's the deep dive I did into you. Um, big fan. Cool. Um, there's be, one-
2: your head. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I, uh, yeah, if I would have, it would have hurt cause there's no hair up there anymore.
0: Uh,
1: I've got two questions to ask you before we, before we end this. Uh, first off, you're the second person who's had kiss memorabilia in, in the, uh, uh, background. The, the last one was mis- Mr. Showtime, David Scott. Have you ever worked with him?
2: No, I haven't. But
1: he's a big Kiss fan, so I got to ask, what's your favorite Kiss song?
2: Um, my favorite Kiss song is probably uh, Detroit Rock City. Okay,
1: that's that's actually my number two. Um, uh, Cold Gen is my favorite, but
2: uh, yeah, I like Cold Jen, uh I, I, But uh, I love uh, Detroit Rock City, um, King of the Nighttime World. Oh yeah, uh, God of Thunder. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh, Black Diamond. Yeah. Uh, love gun. So but so, uh, King of the
1: Nighttime World and um, uh, God of Thunder were add-ons to Kiss Alive 2. and those were two of my favorite songs on on that live album. That's funny.
2: Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean we mean add-ons?
1: Well, they they weren't live. Um, the,
2: no, no, they they were live. Oh, the, they the, were. Yeah, the the, the 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 songs on the back. <laughs> Uh, the, the 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 songs on the last side of the album which were studio tracks were American Man Larger than Life, Rocket Ride okay and and uh, one more I can't remember what it is.
3: okay
1: yeah, you're you're a bigger kiss fan than I am, but, uh, <laughs> but I for joke, some reason
2: the, the joke I do in my act is I say uh, my mom took me to my first kiss concert. my dad took me to my second kiss concert. And a drifter paid by my mom and dad took me to my third kiss concert.
1: <laughs> so they weren't uh, fans.
2: <laughs> yeah. And this, and this kiss lamp, uh, it was a 53rd birthday party for my pa- a, a present for my parents uh, it's from the Bradford exchange. Oh, cool. And this is a new joke in my act or recent joke in my act. And my mom, I said, mom, do you think the fact that I love this kiss lamp more than any of my other worldly possessions means I am emotionally stunted and, <laughs> Fifty three, you know, and she said, no, sweetheart, <laughs> all it means is you have really good taste in music and you'll have a really nice piece of furniture. Should you ever move out and get a place of your own?
1: <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, so the last question, and this is uh, something I ask everybody, what three things do you know now about stand up com- comedy that you wish you would have known when you started?
2: Uh, what? Uh, OK, the first one. Is what a what a premise and act out and a mix are? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, how to have a point of view? What people meant by a point of view? I was driven crazy by every TV scout, every comedy festival scout that said you have to have a point of view.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And what I, yeah, the food sucks at Denny's. Uh-huh. That's my point of view. <laughs> I think the food at Denny's sucks. What are you talking about? How is that not a point of view? Uh-huh. You know, and and nobody could tell you what a point of view was. Nobody like everybody who said, well, you're not right for our festival. You're not right for a show because you don't have a point of view. Uh You don't have a comedic voice. I had no it took me almost 25 years to figure out what they meant. And what they mean is, is. You're not supposed to do stand up. You're not supposed to say things to get a laugh. You're supposed to get laughs so you can say things. That's the number one thing. Uh, Took so, me 30 years uh, almost to figure that out. Uh-huh. So I didn't know how to write jokes about real life opinions about real life things, uh-huh. and oh, how you do that is through a premise. A premise is an insight into the human condition, which that which you use to prove what is stupid, weird, hard, or scary about a certain aspect of life. Mm -hmm. And then you use the various comedic formulas or, or tools such as act outs and mixes. Like an act out is like when you go like, uh, you know, man, people are so rude when then you act like the person at the store, you know, or a mix is like, uh, yeah you never see them do that there. Wouldn't it be funny if we did the same thing? Huh? You know. Yeah. You know wouldn't it be funny if that's how it was on airplanes? You know that that's a mix. Yeah. And what you're doing is you're juxtapositioning you're juxtapositioning the situation to shed more light on what it is you're trying to prove. Uh-huh. So by taking a situation and trying to show how dumb that situation, how difficult that situation by using a mix and putting it in a whole different uh, c- uh, scenario it makes it easier to see so so to figure out what a, uh, a what a premise is and how to develop your comedic voice is the most important thing that i've learned mm-hmm. uh the other thing that i wish i had known was uh that uh people have to uh, how to be how to be political how you behave in a club, how, how 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 fun you are to, to work with. Mm. Um, and Basically, um, just know, being nice. No, yeah. not being nice because okay. I was super nice. Okay. Uh, I, I, I've always been nice. Mm. Is not being annoying uh, and not being okay. high maintenance and okay. not always letting everybody know everything that you're thinking.
3: Yeah. Okay.
2: your on your sleeve. Yeah. And be, easy, be easy to work with. Okay. I mean, your grandmother's nice, but you want to kick her down a flight of stairs. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, it's not about being nice. Yeah. You know, um, so, uh, and then the other thing is uh, what, what else i have known about stand up comedy? Um, how to, uh, try to think, what, what, what would it be? Um, how to really care about what people think about your act without really caring about what people think about your act. So, um, going up on stage and making sure like the most important thing for me is that if I know I did a, a, if I know a joke is honest and I put my heart into it, Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter what people think mm-hmm. or if they, or I will take their criticism to help make the joke better. Mm-hmm. But um, if you're not happy with a bit or you don't believe in it, no matter how many compliments you get, you're 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 not going to be happy.
1: Mm-hmm. I understand that I felt that and mm-hmm. actually taking stuff out of my set that people like because I didn't it didn't feel like it was part of me. So I, I dig that. Mm-hmm
2: but also to have to also you have to learn how to, to make emails really short when dealing with bookers. And I have the hardest time with that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I, I got like, you know, like, like anytime, anytime a, a booker gets an email from me, it's like, Oh, Stephen King's doing comedy. Now.
1: <laughs>
2: hey, speaking of Stephen
1: King, um, for my listeners, talk about the the YouTube stuff you've got going on uh, okay, because um, because that's really cool stuff.
2: Okay, I'll do that real quick, but I have to be out of here in four minutes. To okay, get out my car for the body shop. I got gotcha. you. Um, yeah, I uh, do a segment on YouTube called uh, "You're Doing It Wrong,"
3: uh-huh.
2: and uh, and I also post them on on, on uh, uh, here. That's another the third thing that I wish I'd known, but it's not. What I wish I'd known thirty years ago. That's what I wish I would have known five years ago,
3: uh-huh.
2: how important social media is and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, I've been taking courses. I've been learning. Uh, and, and it's so hard. It's like the hardest thing I've ever done, but uh, it's so important. Yeah. But, uh, so, uh my YouTube is uh, Jeff Shaw. I think uh, Jeff Shaw 65. And then uh, all you have to do is run a search on Google for comedian Jeff Shaw. And all my stuff comes up. My website is JeffTheFunded.com. Mm-hmm. And so all my stuff is cross-promoted. Like all of my videos yeah. I, I try to put on uh, YouTube. And I, I release uh, different versions on the different platforms. And uh, I have a, one called The Worry Appointment, which were like these Andy Rooney type essays about things that bother me or, or uh-huh. worried me. And you're doing it wrong is just a series that I did. Some my friend of mine, Al Romero, as a comedian, he gave me an idea. You know, so uh, I wanted a, a feature that people, you know, could look forward to. I basically just meet ranting about what I think people are doing wrong. So yeah. one of them was, "Hey Stephen King, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Stop writing your novels faster than I can read them. Yeah. <laughs> I started it in 1982. I just finished it last year. <laughs> wow, Jeff, you're a real slow reader. No, it, erlock <laughs> 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 And uh, I'm tired of Stephen King being so prolific. He puts out three to four 1,000-page novels every year, and I spent six hours today writing new material. I came up with four lousy lines. You want to hear them? All fun and no play made Jeff a dull boy. Joke number two, all fun and no play made Jeff a dull boy. All work and no play made Jeff a dull boy. And joke number four, here's Jeffy. So so that's that's like the nature of those and you can check them out on youtube yeah Put them out every week. yeah
1: i really i really enjoyed those and uh you're doing a good job with it well i know you got to get to get go get your car but thank you so much for doing this i'm a fan and obviously you are just
0: knocking out of the park as far as uh, stand-up comedy is going
2: oh thanks buddy i appreciate
0: it